One of the most well-known paintings um, was done by a man by the name of Lars Justinen. And it is a painting of Jesus as a boy working in his, carp- his father's carpenter shop. You will notice in the painting as Joseph carries the wood back and forth in uh, the shop, that as the sun shines through the window, there is a very interesting shadow that falls from the sunlight on the boy Jesus. You can see it, can't you? It is a shadow in the shape of a cross. And the artist is making a very important point, isn't he? He is teaching us something, that Jesus lived his entire life in the shadow of the cross. He knew from earliest age that he had to be about his father's business, and he knew the cross was why he had come. Perhaps you know the title of this painting. It's In the Shadow of the Cross. Today, we're going to begin a sermon series that I'm entitling, In the Shadow of the Cross. It is a study of the second half of Mark's Gospel, chapters 9 through 16. Now, a few years ago, we studied the first half of Mark's Gospel, chapters 1 through 8. And now today, we begin a study of the second half of this wonderful Gospel. Perhaps you know that the theme verse of Mark is Mark 10.45. It is the theme verse of Jesus' life where he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this not only declares Jesus' purpose for coming, but it also gives us an outline of the Gospel of Mark. In chapters 1 through 8, we see Jesus serving, we see him ministering, and he proves his claims by what he does. Then the high point of his life up until that time, and of this gospel comes, in chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, says, You are the Christ. The disciples get it. They understand. Right? Or do they? Or do they? They don't really understand the last part, do they? They don't understand that he had come to give his life a ransom for many. And that the very nation he came to first would refuse his claims. And so starting with Peter's confession, Jesus begins to teach them about his death and resurrection. And as he does, he journeys closer and closer to Jerusalem, the place of his final rejection. Do you know, before Peter's confession, in chapters 1 through 8, Jesus never uses the word killed one time. But after Jesus' confession, 
Peter's confession, he will use the word killed nine times. Jesus begins to now openly and plainly talk about living in the shadow of the cross. Would you take your Bibles and open with me to Mark chapter 8. And notice the very first time in verse 31 where Jesus begins to explain this to his disciples. Mark chapter 8 and notice with me verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes. And now here's the first usage of this word, and be killed, and after three days rise again. What does it mean to follow a suffering, crucified, rejected, and resurrected Savior? Do you know, as Jesus begins to unfold this for his disciples, the first thing he does for them is to encourage them. As the shadow of the cross grows darker and darker, Jesus wants them to know that it is worth it to follow him. And in our dark times, as we follow a rejected and yet risen Savior, It is worth it for us to follow him. It is interesting how Jesus encouraged them. He gave them a glimpse of his true identity. Drop down to chapter 9 and notice verses 1 and 2. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Jesus showed his disciples his identity as he truly was. We call this the transfiguration. And how we see Jesus is the difference between discouragement and encouragement when times get tough. This morning, as we begin to look at the transfiguration, there is a principle that I believe the Lord Jesus is teaching us. And we need to get this principle so deeply in our minds. Let's read it together, shall we? Join me. If we see Jesus clearly, we will live for Jesus courageously in tough times. Do you need that principle as you start 2017? I sure do. I need to see Jesus clearly so that I can live for him courageously no matter what comes. The Bible says here that Jesus took them to a high mountain. Most likely, that mountain was Mount Hermon in Syria. 9,000 feet is that mountain. 
What a majestic mountain towering over the landscape of Israel. This was truly a mountaintop experience for the disciples. Jesus was transfigured here. We have a majestic Savior. A majestic Savior. This morning as we look together at This transfiguration, what we're going to see is there are four stages in the transfiguration. And those four stages give to us four encouraging truths. Now this morning, I'm going to begin with the first two. And next week, we will look at three and four. But let's just take a moment, shall we? And ask the Lord to teach us this morning. Gracious God, Thank you that you have given us a vision of Jesus that is true, is real, is clear. And just as this was a mountaintop experience for the disciples, so the same vision is to be a mountaintop experience for us, that we might see him clearly, so that courageously we can live for him in the shadow of our cross. Teach us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. To begin with, the first stage of the transfiguration is a vision of Jesus' glory. If you look with me at verse 3, it says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, it's interesting, the word here for transfigured that is used in verse 2 is our word metamorphosis. We all know a tadpole goes through a metamorphosis. We know that a caterpillar goes through a metamorphosis. And this is an outward change that comes from within. By the way, do you know what the opposite of this is? The opposite of metamorphosis is a masquerade. It is an outward change that does not come from within. If I had on a Superman outfit this morning, you all know this would not be a metamorphosis. It would be a masquerade. You shouldn't have laughed so hard this morning. Jesus was not masquerading. He was metamorphosed in front of his disciples. Amen this morning? Amen. And the Bible says that his clothes became radiant. Very interesting word. It was a word that was used of polished brass, polished steel, polished gold. It was used even of the golden glare of the sunlight. So intense was this glow that Mark says to us here, no launderer on earth could bleach his clothing any whiter. And so what it is describing is a heavenly brilliance, clearly not an earthly brilliance. You know what I think would be the closest for us? 
If we were to go into a dark room wearing a white t-shirt and there was a strobe light or an ultraviolet light in there and we would watch our shirt just glow in that light, it is probably about the closest we can come to what this must have looked like. Now what is this vision's meaning for Christ? Well, clearly what it means is that he shared glory with the Father as the eternal Son of God. Near the end of his life, just before uh, the final uh, Passion Week, as Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he prayed to the Father about the glory he had with him before the world began. And then when he came to earth, he assumed a human nature, veiled that glory in the incarnation, and it was hidden. The prophet Isaiah said about him in Isaiah 53.2, that he had no form or majesty that we would look upon him, no beauty did he have that we would desire him. But then following his resurrection, and we get a glimpse of it in Revelation 1 as John looks into heaven and he sees Jesus having assumed his glory once again. Now the only place in Jesus' entire life up until his exaltation and resurrection before his glory shone through is right here in the transfiguration. Remember how John put it in John 1? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, says John. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter can later write of this experience. experience. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for we were with Him on this holy mountain. You see, what Jesus was doing, he was giving them a preview of his future glory. I like the way one pastor said it. He slipped back into eternity, to his pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. Jesus would suffer, he would be rejected, he would die, but he would rise again to eternal glory. His death was temporary, but his glory would be forever. Now what is the meaning then of this vision for us? Well, it is simply this. Please apply this to your life today. The meaning of this vision is the glory is forever. We live in a world of fading dreams. The glory of this world is so very, very temporary. Thomas Akempis wrote the great classic, The Imitation of Christ. And he said, how swiftly passes the glory of this world. Uh, Tonight, the Dallas Cowboys will be playing the Green Bay Packers. Did you know that, by the way? And they will be playing for a chance to advance to the Super Bowl. Do you know, after their first Super Bowl victory many years ago, they were interviewing in the locker room after the game the star running back, Dwayne Thomas, and they asked him what he thought. You know what he said? 
He said, if this is so great, why are they going to do it again next year? Minutes after the game, the glory was already fading. He was already feeling how empty this is. Years ago, I, I clipped a picture out of uh, the newspaper of a mother grimacing in tears at a news conference. What had happened was she and her family had gone to Ontario to watch a professional hockey game. While they were watching the game, a hockey puck flew over the glass and hit their 10-year-old son, Chad, in the head. It knocked him into a coma. And when he came out of the coma in the hospital, the doctors said, it is too soon to discern the extent of the brain damage. And as I saw this grimacing mother crying at this news conference, wondering, well, now I now have a child with a brain damage, and, and how will that affect his life? I thought to myself, isn't this typical of the glory of the world? What begins so promising and so wonderful oftentimes ends so devastating. You know, as I thought about this, I thought to myself, can I think of one thing in this world that is permanent? And you know what I thought? I can't think of one. Everything in this world that I can think of is temporary. In fact, what, remember what Jesus said? Heaven and earth will what? Pass away. Pass away. That is pretty inclusive. And so how refreshing it is for us to come to a scene in which we see the glory of Jesus that will last forever and ever. And then read a, a verse like Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, would you read these two verses for me? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Join with me about what we have in Christ. Let's read it together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's the glory that is reserved for you and me. I remember when I was in seminary, an African-American student came for his freshman year. He was from Youngstown, Ohio. And he was a delightful, delightful young man. Almost the first week of his studies his brother was murdered 
back in Youngstown. And he had to go back home to the funeral of his murdered brother and then come back to his studies in seminary. And I thought to myself, talk about a world of fading dreams. Here he was beginning his first year in a career that he hoped would unfold before him And his brother was murdered back home. How could you possibly concentrate on Greek, Hebrew, and church history? I wondered, how can he go on? The only answer I can give today is his eyes were on a majestic Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away, said Jesus, but my words will what? Never pass away. Never pass away. You see, the lesson for us in this first stage of the vision of glory is the glory is forever. Let's look at the second stage. Stage number two. In verses 4 through 6, we have the visitors from heaven. And I want you to notice what occurred. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, in this wonderful vision of Christ, suddenly we have these two visitors from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Moses had been dead over 1,400 years. Elijah had been gone now about 900 years. By the way, do you know what they were talking with Jesus about? So grateful that we have more than one gospel. Mark does not tell us here what they were talking about, but Luke in his gospel tells us they were talking with Jesus about his exodus. Just as Moses had led the Israelites out of bondage through the exodus from Egypt, so they were talking about how Jesus was going to die, but then he would rise again, and he would lead many, many people who believed in him to a greater exodus out of spiritual bondage. Let me ask you a question this morning as you look at the transfiguration. By the way, this is another beautiful painting by the Danish painter Karl Bloch. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that Moses and Elijah, of all the characters of the Old Testament, appeared? Well, let me give you these reasons. They are very important. Number one, both met God on Mount Sinai. Two, 
both on that mountain saw the glory of God. Number three, both mysteriously departed from the earth. You remember Moses was buried directly by God, and no one knew where the location of the grave was. Elijah was raptured to heaven in a whirlwind and never died. Now, there were some Jewish claims that claimed that Moses was still alive. I have to remind you of this because this is the only place, I guess, that I could share this experience. I had a professor of mine one day who was at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And as he was walking along in the crowd, he saw on the escalator on the other side... Uh, the actor Charlton Heston, who played Moses in the Ten Commandments, riding on the escalator on the other side. So you know what my professor did? He yelled out to him, Hey Moses, how you doing? Charlton Heston yelled back, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine. Now many Jews actually thought that Moses was still alive. And so notice next, both Moses and Elijah were expected to return. Because of their disappearances, some Jews thought they would return before the end. And now notice this, both represented the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into two parts, the Law and the Prophets. Moses wrote the Law. Elijah was the first and the greatest of the prophets. You remember what Philip said to Nathanael in John chapter 1 and verse 45. He rushed to Nathanael and he said, We have found the one about whom the law and the prophets write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The law pointed to Jesus. The sacrifices illustrated Jesus. And the prophets predicted Jesus. So here we have the two representatives of the whole Old Testament. The Jews have been waiting for the Messiah to come for years. They believe, many of them, these two men will appear before the end of time. And now they have appeared on the holy mountain to say, the wait is over. The wait is over. He is here. And through his death and the greater exodus in his resurrection, he is going to set his people free. And so what is the lesson for us? What is the lesson? Well, I think the lesson of this part of the transfiguration is that our wait is over. Our wait is over. You might say to me, Pastor Brian, what wait are you talking about? And I would say this. Jesus is the end of everything that you are searching for. Whatever you are waiting for that you believe will bring you fulfillment, Jesus is the end of that wait. 
Let me read for you just a few things about what Jesus gives to us because He is alive and glorified forevermore. Your sins are forgiven you, Mark 2 and verse 5. Your joy may be full, John 15 and verse 11. My peace I give you, John 14 and verse 27. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8. I give living water which will become in you a spring of water welling up into eternal life, John 4.14. And you may have life and have it more abundantly, John 10.10. All that we could ever long for, it comes through Jesus. Our wait is over. This week I was reminded of something that occurred 20 years ago that I'm sure by now most of us has forgotten, but this year is its 20th anniversary. The 20th anniversary of the Heaven's Gate cult mass suicide. That occurred in 1997. You may remember what happened. The leader convinced his followers of this cult called the Heaven's Gate cult that in the tale of the Haley Bop Comet, which was passing by our solar system, there was a UFO. And in that UFO, he told his followers there were aliens of a higher life who were coming to take them to eternal life. The comet was their sign, and here's a picture of the Haley Bop comet, that they were to release their spirits from their bodies and escape to eternal life. And all of them together massly committed suicide. They thought their wait was over, and they died as they followed their leader, who said, follow me. Do you know what I find is very interesting? Right before the transfiguration, Jesus said, follow me. Would you look back at verses 34 to 38 of Mark 8? And notice what he says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and... Follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, and now notice this, 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Our wait is over because Jesus came in the glory of his Father. And because of that, we can follow him. We can follow him. Let's pray together. Just before we sing and our praise team leads us, do you see Jesus clearly? Do I see him clearly? None of us knows what this year may bring, but we know this. If we follow a Savior who suffered, was rejected, whose claims were refused, and who before he rose to assume again his glory was killed, we know that we will have to serve him courageously this year. We don't know what may befall us physically. We don't know what will happen to our families. We don't know the difficult circumstances that we may be in. We do not even know what may be said, our beloved church. But all we know is if the glory is forever and the wait for all that we have longed for is over, then we can follow Him who proved Himself our Savior and Lord. Maybe you're here today and, and you don't know Him as Lord and Savior. In your heart, where you are sitting right now, you can turn to Him. And the very glory that He one day will bestow upon all of His followers can begin now by faith to reside in your heart. Maybe you have not followed Him as closely as you should have in 2016. Maybe uh, the glory of who He is and what He has done has grown dim for you. And you need to have a clearer vision of Jesus that you might serve Him more faithfully. If that be the case, just say, Lord, help me to see You as You truly are, that I might live my life with the things that really matter. I want to follow you closer this year. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you today, that this vision that was so transforming for your disciples would remain for us, transforming in our lives. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.